Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. If you're joining us online, I'm glad you're joining us this morning. My name's Sean, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are working through the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible that you want to follow along with, you can open Hebrews. If you've got a phone that has the Bible app on it or a tablet, you can. If not, um, all the good stuff is going to be right here up on the screen as we work our way through Hebrews. But before we do, i got a couple quick announcements for you. Um, this year, we decided that we would celebrate Easter this year. So um, for those of you who don't know, it happens on April 9th this year. I, you know, it moves all over the place. It's just like whack-a-mole. We just kind of chase it around the month of April and March. And uh, so April 9th, and it's going to be really hard to remember service times for Easter, okay? If you join us online, it's going to be really hard to remember our service times are going to be at 9 and 11. And we'll be live online at 11. So, if you show up when you do normally for church, um, just like every other week, you'll be five minutes late. So that'll be great, right? Um, uh, also, we're doing our Easter egg hunt um, April 8th, Main Street Park. We are, um, our goal is to have 10,000 Easter eggs. And the part we need you to help us with is two things, is either to be a part of it, which you can text mom to the 97,000 and you can be a part of it, or to get 10,000 pieces of candy. Okay, 10,000 individual wrapped pieces of candy. Um, and uh, there's some bins by the doors you come in. If you order them on Amazon, you can just have them sent straight to our house. Um, or you can drop them by throughout the week uh, so we can fill up 10,000 Easter eggs. Last year, we had somewhere over 500 people um, at Main Street Park. And it was awesome and fun. And, and we're excited to celebrate Easter weekend again with our community. And then the last thing is moving backwards. It's for the eighth year in a row, we're going to have our community-wide Good Friday service. This year, we're partnering with six other churches, and it's going to be here on Good Friday, April 7th at 7 p.m., um, or you can watch online, and, uh, and we'd love for you guys to, to, to join us for that as we kind of um, take some moment to breathe and to just be in the truth and the reality of what consummates this whole weekend that we celebrate in Easter. Okay, Hebrews, here we go. Hebrews um, 2 says this. You ready? What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, uh, um, I'm, I'm going to give you a little heads up right out of the gate, right now, okay? Um, he, here's a, a fact that I know about our community. You may not know this. I'm sure you do. It's probably self-evident. Um, the number one industry in our community, you know this? Number one industry in our community is education. Number one industry in our community is education. More people work for a school district or for the university than any other single industry in our community. Okay, so with that, here's what I'm gonna ask you. I'm gonna ask you, we're gonna have to use our brain a little bit today, okay? We're gonna do some little bit of technical stuff. We're gonna have to think critically about some things, but here's what I wanna promise you. I know you guys are like, come on, I spend five days a week with kids. I spend five days a week in school. Uh, this is Sunday. Like, I could have just stayed home and watched March Madness, and you could have, and maybe if you're on, at home, you're watching both of them on the screen at the same time. But I promise you that if we spend a little bit of time doing some work, doing a little bit of technical work, it's gonna pay off in the end, okay? So here we go. He here's the start of the technical work. Um, you 
probably have a Bible that is a Bible translation of something, right? You probably, if you open up the scriptures, you are not going to read from the Greek, okay? And so everything beyond that is a Bible translation. Now, there's a lot of different Bible translations. And maybe you've gone to a Christian bookstore or you've downloaded the Bible app and you like clicked on the translation and you started seeing like all these ones like NIV 1995, NIV 2020, NIV Anglican, NIV England. And you're like, what are all these NASB, NASB 95, ESB? And you've got these like millions of different translations. Now, the thing about translations is that every translation has a different theory about what they're trying to do. Sometimes people say this to me, okay? And if you've said this, I don't say this to um, make you feel like an idiot, but um, some people say this to me. They'll say, why can't we just have a literal translation? Um, we, we can't, we do, you wouldn't read it. It wouldn't make any sense. The only time, here's my theory, okay? Maybe I'm wrong. As someone who only speaks one language, okay? Here's my theory. People only ask for a little translation when they only speak one language. Because if you're fluent in multiple languages, you realize that every language is so weird and different from one another. There's different rules to how verbs interact with nouns. There's uh, Joe Hoover. He's actually here. I call him out like every single Sunday because he's just so helpful uh, to call him out. But Joe Hoover, we were having this conversation a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. He's a Bible translator about how there was one word or a part of a word, and that one word impacted the way you translated something paragraphs later because of the Greek language. Language, that one word or phrase could be carried on to all these other verbs and nouns paragraphs later, right? That's, that's, that's weird to us who are English speakers. The verb and the noun aren't always in the right order in the way that we think that they're supposed to be. Adjectives can happen all over the place. It's all kinds of weird stuff. So when you have a Bible translation, a Bible translator has the incredibly difficult job of taking a language from 2,000 years ago Okay, um, yes, today people still speak Greek. Okay, there's, uh, there's a country called Greece, right? And they speak Greek in Greece. It's not at all the same as biblical Greek. I mean, just think about trying to read Shakespeare from a couple hundred years ago, right? And it's been 2,000 years of language evolution, right? And so uh, the, 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 um, you, you've, you've got this biblical Greek who has written 2,000 years ago with all kinds of different cultural idioms and ideas and, and cultural views about how things happen and things that they believe are okay linguistically, how you use different language patterns, all these types of things. And so a translator has to do the very incredible, strenuous, difficult job of trying to take a language from 2,000 years ago in a culture that is thousands of miles away from us, thousands of years separated from us, and try and figure out how to make it so that we, in our 21st century English, understand what's being said. And there's, there's some different theories. This is not the only way of, of categorizing different translations, but this one is most helpful for me, Right? You have literal translation, just word for word, not helpful, okay? You have uh, what is sometimes called dynamic literal translation. So a dynamic literal translation, one of my favorite that I use, is um, the NASB. Um, the ESV is also kind of in this category. What they try and do, okay, remember we, we're, we're going to get a payoff in the end here. What they try and do in the NASB is they, is they try and take 
the intent or meaning of a phrase or a sentence, and they take kind of that chunk and they do their best to communicate that, that chunk as um, dry, we'll say that, as dry as they can. Okay, so that's why it's dynamic. They have some ability to move things around a little bit, but they're trying to stay as close to being literal as possible. Now, one of the most popular versions of the Bible in America today is the NIV. The NIV is more of what would be called a dynamic translation. The NIV is trying to communicate the gist of each sentence, but they're also making theological decisions. They're also making cultural decisions, and they're saying, yes, um... It says it this way, but if we use that phrase, if we use that statement um, in the way that it's meant, it wouldn't make any sense. So they, they adapt it and they change it, right? And so that's why it's dynamic. They're still trying to get the sense of the sentence or the phrase, but they have a lot more freedom in it, right? And so it reads a lot easier. If you've ever read the NASB or the ESV, sometimes it could feel very um, clunky as it reads, because their priority is trying to stay as close to the literal translation as possible, okay? The last one is uh, paraphrase. There's some great paraphrase. Um, the mo probably most popular one is Eugene Peterson's um, The Message. It's a great paraphrase, but if you open a paraphrase Bible, if you ever open it and you look at it, and if I'm like, hey, turn to Hebrews 2, verse 5, you're going to open it up, and it's going to say Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 17, right? Because in a paraphrase, he just reads paragraphs, and then he tries to share the intent of the paragraphs. And so he uses language and sentences and whole phrases that aren't anywhere connected in the text literally, but he's trying to get you to feel the same thing that they would have felt reading it in the first century, okay? So, so here's, here's why this matters, okay? Sometimes when you approach the text... No, no biblical text is unsanitized from opinions and theologies and the incorporation of different cultural ideologies, right? And so, so we, we just read in the NASB, we just read a, a verse out of Hebrews. Now, let me show it to you in the NIV, okay? Let me show it to you in the NIV. It says this. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, as son of man, that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. Now, I know it's been a couple minutes, but do you remember enough of what we read the first time to tell the difference? Let me just show you the difference. Let me just show you one of the verses. Look at this. NASB and NIV. Can you see the difference? Right? They made different choices here. And he, here's why this matters, okay? The choices they made are actually telling us the point of the passage, right? The choices that they made. You can see in the tension between, look, look at this, what is man? That's singular, right? Now, yes, man can sometimes mean mankind. Humanity can be referred to as man. That, that's clearly not what they're thinking. You can read through the rest of the NSB, and it says, it says, him, right? Look at the NIV. What is mankind? Do you see? Th those are two different statements. And so you'd have to ask the question, right? Like NIV translators are smart people. 
NASB translators are smart people. They've done hard work. Why would two different translations translate a verse to make it mean something different? Well, another good question you should ask this is like, um, this is a quote. It comes from Psalm 8. What does Psalm 8 say? Right? Like if we look to Psalm 8, what does Psalm 8 say? Um, you're, you're, if you're holding open a Bible, it should in some way indicate that's quote. Maybe it's indented or it's in all caps, right? Which is telling you it's being quoted from somewhere else. So what, is, what does Psalm 8 say? Well, look at what Psalm 8 says. It says this. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. We should have more questions now, right? Because why would the NASB, why would the NASB translate this to say, what is man, man that you care for him? What's going on here? Well, if you know Psalm 8, if you have a Bible open in front of you, you might see at the top of it, it says something like a Psalm of David. Right, And uh, David, one of the kings of Israel, he's, he's writing this poetry. He's writing this, what ends up becoming a song, what ends up in the hymn book of the Jewish people. And he's meditating on Genesis. He's meditating on the story of creation. And he's pondering and thinking about the absurdity of the story of creation. It just is. There's crazy things about story creation, right? And he's meditating on these things. He's thinking on these things. And he's asked this question God, why do you care about us? Right? Genesis 1, he's thinking of verses like this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. Right? Do you remember in the Psalm 8 passage, it said that he would crown them? Place a crown, like a king who has dominion, and your translation might let them have dominion, crown them and David's asking this question. He's like, he's like, God, why would you care about us? Right? Of all the creation in the world, why would we be the one who carry your image? In fact, here's the deal, right? Uh, you know us, right? Like you know us. You know what we do? We mess things up. Like that's, that's almost part of the human condition is that we are people who mess things up, right? Let, let me, David's probably thinking, think about this, okay? David's sitting there going, God, you made all this creation and it was all good. And you put a crown on us to rule, to have dominion, to carry your image and your likeness. The technical term is imago Dei, just means image of God, right? You chose us and all we do from the very beginning of the story is mess things up. Let me ask you this. How many giraffes have messed things up? How many squids have messed things up? Now, squids are a very weird creature, okay? But how many squids have messed things up? But God says, and, and David is sitting there going, I think he's thinking of all of creation, but he's also got to reflect on himself. I mean, David was a mess, right? There's a lot of good and glorious things about David. There's a lot of things to honor about David. Um, but David had his whole own list of problems. And he's got to be thinking of himself. God, why do you care about me? I was, I was just fine as a shepherd. I was just fine in obscurity for years, if not decades. And then all of a sudden you picked me and raised me up to be the king of your treasured possession and your chosen people. He looks at himself and he sees, man, all I do 
the one who's supposed to be wearing the crown of your image, the one who's made in your likeness, who's supposed to rule with honor and glory and beauty and power and righteousness, all we do is mess it up. I mean, you know, David's life, you might think, yeah, well, I mean, you know, David, David and Bathsheba, right? Like, like, that was not good. There's a lot of really horrible things about David and Bathsheba's story. But, you know, like, that was like a, that was a season for David. Like, like you know, maybe he had a bad year, right? Uh, you know, his, his stocks were down, his home life was rough, and he made a really poor decision, right? But here, here's the thing. Um, David, there's this curious exchange David has with God. Um, David, David pleads with God to be able to be the one to build the temple. Do you remember this? He pleads with God. He begs God to let him be the one to build his temple that will stand for all times. And do you remember what God says to him? He says, no. He says, there's too much blood on your hands. So it makes me wonder, like maybe when God looked at David, there was more people who died than God called necessary. That maybe when God looked at David, he saw a man who had plenty of rage and anger and violence, so much so that it stained his hands. David looks at himself and he sees a mess. He looks at his nation and he sees a mess. He looks at us, we look at ourselves, and we see a mess. And the writer of Hebrews knows this. And he, he's doing a technique in, in Jewish writing. He's doing this thing, it's called Midrash. Right? And in Midrash, what they would do is they would take an Old Testament text that maybe had a different meaning at the beginning. I'm just going to be honest, 2,000 years later, this makes me uncomfortable. It probably will make you uncomfortable. They would take a text that had a different meaning and they would commandeer it. They would adopt it as an argument for their point. Here's a great example. We do it every year. Isaiah 7.14. Right? You know Isaiah 7.14? Um, we celebrate every Christmas. The virgin will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, for God is with us. Right? You know, when it was written in the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, nobody envisioned those words to mean that God would send a baby born of a virgin in Mary, and that his Messiah would come in this way. Actually, in the story, what's going on in the story is that uh, the nation of Israel is surrounded and they're at war and they're going to get crushed. And the prophet says, trust God, trust God, trust God, stay with God, trust God, trust God. And he says, here, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign. See that woman over there? She's going to have a kid. And when she has a kid, you're going to hold that baby and you're going to hear that cry and you're going to hold that baby and you're going to go, this is the sign that God will always be with us. And we will call him Emmanuel, Right? But Matthew and the New Testament writers look at that text and say, oh, that was beautiful and that was good. But there's something more that God's trying to say in that that even the first writers didn't understand. The same exact thing is happening here. Is the writer of Hebrews is saying, it is good and wonderful and great, this, this, this psalm of David. But they're saying, look, we can't be what David is talking about. We, we can't fulfill what God called us to in Genesis. Do you remember from the very beginning? He says, I'm going to crown you with glory and honor. And then you know what we do? We're just like, you know what? How quickly can we train wreck this? And all of human history has been us who are supposed to reflect the image of God, his goodness and his mercy and his kindness and his righteousness, just train wrecking it over and over and over again. And the writer of Hebrews is quoting 
this to say, hey, you know what? God must have meant something more than what we can see. The writer, uh, Paul, he writes a bunch of New Testament. When Paul writes, he, he, he sees this. He uses a little bit different language. He uses this language. He says, um, uh, we're, we're all of Adam. And what he talks about is, is he says that every single one of us, like Adam, that we are sons of our father in Adam who rebelled, who was broken, who was sinful, who failed to live up to the crown that was intended to be placed on us as image bearers, to be ones made in his likeness. That all of us, right, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But there needs to be a new Adam. There needs to be a new beginning. There needs to be a new man. He writes about this in Colossians 1. I love this passage. I'm just going to read it from here. Um, Colossians 1, it says this, right? He says, for he, being God, rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is Jesus. He's the new Adam, right? Firstborn. For by him, all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, whether on things on earth or things in heaven, here it is. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, enemies of God, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The writer of Hebrews says, look, the crown we were intended to carry to be image bearers of God was a task we have been unable to carry. In fact, um, it says that he crowned us with glory and honor. You, you know what the root word of glory is? The root word of glory is weight. Weight. When you experience something glorious, you feel its weight. When, when you stand at the end of um, the Grand Canyon... At first service, I couldn't remember what it was called. Um, when you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, if you've ever been there, you stand at the edge and you look out and there's just something that almost makes it hard to breathe as you see the gloriousness of this, of God's creation. And you feel the weight. That, that's what glory means. And we, as a people, the writer of Hebrews recognizes, we were intended to carry this weight of being made in the image of God and carrying his weight, his glory, his honor, his beauty. And we have failed at it over and over again. And so the writer of Hebrews takes this passage and he says, there must be someone else that if humanity, if creation has any hope, it can't be us. And this is what Paul writes, right? He begins right at the very beginning. He is the image of the invisible God. Here's an interesting thing. Um, we were made in the image of God. He 
is the image. Do you see the difference? We were made in his likeness. He is being the very nature God. The writer of Hebrews says that every single one of us busted and broken we're unwilling, unable to do what God had called us, what God had created us to do, to carry the crown and the weight and the responsibility of being the ones who reflect who he is to all of creation for all of eternity. And there had to be someone else that carried that crown. So Hebrews 2 says this. Hebrews 2 verse 9, it says this. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus because of his suffering, death, because of his suffering death, crowned with glory and honor. You see that right there? Set to rule, to have dominion, crowned in glory and honor. This is what God tried to do with us in the creation. To be his image bearers who would carry his crown of his glory and honor. And we were unable. Here's the deal. What it means to be a follower of Jesus is not people who have it figured out. What it means to be a follower of Jesus isn't people who figured out how to carry the responsibility of being a morally upright person. It's not people who have gotten up at four in the morning to pray for three hours and by their bootstraps pulled themselves up. But it's people who recognize our inability, our brokenness, who recognize our shame and our hurt and our scars. But we're a people who know a healer, were people who know one who is able to carry the crown we could not carry. Death crowned him with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. One translation I read, I, I, I like this. Um, it said that he might consume death for everyone. This is, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Like God had a design for us and a place for us to play. And every single one of us, not just Adam and not just David, every single one of us has messed it up. But there is one. There is one who is good and gracious, who has humbled himself and suffered and consumed the death that wanted to consume us. There is one who's worthy of wearing the crown and he, he, here's the good news for us. Here's, watch this. Hebrews 2, verse 11, look at what it says. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Now you might ask, why would Jesus be ashamed to call us brothers and sisters? Because <laughs> we're a dumpster fire as a people. Like we're a mess, right? Have you spent much time with yourself? Like, yeah, there may be some things in your life, some scars in your life that you've experienced because of other people's brokenness and because of other people's sinfulness and because of other people's abuse and rebellion. But there's a lot of stuff in our life that's a mess because we're in our life. Like, all it takes is a couple of us getting in the room to figure out how to be selfish and broken and busted and angry people. But you know what it says instead? There's this part of scripture and it paints this picture about judgment day and this parade that's going to happen and the celebration that's going to happen and Jesus is going to be there and you know what he's going to be doing? He, he's going to see you in all your ragged, nasty mess and, and he's going to see you and he's going, my brother! 
Did you see him? God, God, right over here, right over here. Dude, this one right here, he's, he's mine. He's, that's my brother. That's my little brother right there. Right, that's my sister. Oh, man, I love my sister. That's my sister. Because he wore the crown we couldn't. He suffered and died the death that we deserved so that we could be adopted into a family so that our name wouldn't be screw up. Our name wouldn't be reject. Our name wouldn't be incapable. Our name wouldn't be unwanted. Our name would be sons and daughters of the king, brothers and sisters of Jesus. Now, here's the last thing I want to give to you. I recognize that probably most of us in this room probably consider ourselves followers of Jesus. And here's the challenge I want to give to you. If you want to grow close to Jesus, if you want to walk near him every single day, remember where the writer of Hebrews tells us he is. He is suffering. He humbled himself and suffered and died. He humbled himself and took on the shame, even to the point of death on a cross. If we are going to be people who walk near to Jesus, we will be people who humble ourselves. We're going to be people who get a PhD in emptying ourselves and humbling ourselves and serving the most unwanted, the most rejected, and maybe the hardest people to love, the most arrogant and condescending. Because that's where Jesus is. Jesus is there, walking with the unwanted and the rejected, the hurting and the broken, the vulnerable, the victims, and showing compassion and grace to the undeserving, arrogant, condescending jerk. That's where Jesus is, on his knees, washing the feet of his disciples who will betray him and reject him. That's where Jesus is, touching the lepers, touching the woman caught in the act of adultery, rejected and unwanted. That's where Jesus is. There's this one scene we often forget because we hear all the words of Jesus um, against the religious leaders, but did you know that Jesus' heart broke for those who would later chant, crucify him, who would lead in the unrighteous um, crucifixion of him, it says that he, he sat on a hill outside of Jerusalem and, and he looked down and he said, oh, Jerusalem, how I've wanted, like a hen gathers her chicks to gather you, but you are unwilling. Even to the very end, Jesus continues to plead with the arrogant and the condescending jerk. He continues to show compassion and grace and mercy to the people that everybody else overlooked. If we are going to be people who carry the name Christian, Christians, Christ ones, we are going to be people who, like him, find our ways to empty ourselves, to humble ourselves down, to serve the most unwanted, the rejected, the overlooked, because that's where Jesus is. So who is it for you? Like, like maybe, like, let, let's be honest. Um, maybe it's a coworker, right? And you're like, I just can't, I can't stand the, it just drives me. Jesus calls you to bend your knee to serve them. Maybe it's a spouse and you have a list of wrongs that they need to do to earn back your approval. 
Jesus calls you to bend your knee and serve them. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a a friend, maybe it's a child or a parent, and you have a whole list of things to say, well, they did this and they did this. They're my enemy. Do you remember what he said in Colossians? We, we were his enemies. We were enemies of God. And he emptied himself and he humbled himself and he put himself lower to serve to carry the weight of what it means to be image bearers. If we are going to be the kind of image bearers that look like the Jesus we claim to worship, then we are going to be people who selflessly serve and give of ourselves for his glory and honor because he is worthy of all that we are. So who is it this week for you? That you need to make a choice, not because they earned it or deserved it, not because they're taking steps in the right direction, but because Jesus did the same for you, that you will serve and give and be gracious so that we might one day look like our Jesus, crowned in glory and honor.